So, so I'm getting a lot of questions this morning about masks. I'm not sure, sure why so much. No, I'm kidding. Um, let me just say uh, what we've been saying. Uh, let's just stay the course. The course for us at Crossroads is that we have called each person to act according to their own conscience. Uh, this is not one of those big issues that ought to divide us. And so we all have a conscience. And as you live into your conscience, let's also respect everyone else in this room. Let's believe the best about people. Let's not judge people. Um, and see this as an opportunity for us to be the things that we're going to be learning more about today because there's so much at stake. And to be divided about uh, silly things like masks and vaccines, it's just not worth it. Um, so stay in the game, everybody. This church has been incredible in this season, and uh, let's just stay the course, okay? Also, two weekends from now, does anybody know what weekend it's going to be? Memorial Day weekend. So here's the plan. Um, we typically have a big picnic outside, but we don't feel like that's the right thing for us to do this year. Uh, so what we're going to do is, because a lot of you are going to be having a lot of fun, getting away, family, friends, neighbors, uh, we're not going to have services in this building on that Sunday. We've already put the service together uh, for you to watch. We did it this week in one of the homes, and it's going to reflect what we're calling you to, uh, to be in your home uh, with people, family, friends, maybe even some neighbors, and maybe what we've provided will give you a tool uh, to use this incredible vehicle that we believe in. Uh, the church is not a building. This, we say this all the time. Church is people of God gathered um, and, and who are living at their street corner for the kingdom of heaven. So that's what that weekend we're calling you all to. Just maybe one amen or not. <laughs> okay. We are looking at the book of Romans. Um, Romans 12 through 16. I would say chapters 13 to 16 are often missed. We usually stop at chapter 12. So that's why we started at the end of Romans. But now we're going to reverse direction. We're going to go to Romans 12 and work the other way to the end of Romans, okay? We, the reason we did that, hopefully it's, it's painfully obvious to everybody. One of Paul's main purpose statements is in Romans 15 and then exclamation point in 16. Um, and for even reasons for hopefully that you'll hear this morning, this will come to more clarity. But let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Two amazing verses. Many of us know these verses. Some of us have them memorized. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Therefore, that is one big therefore. If you know everything that's in Romans 1 through 11, especially 1 through 8, um, that therefore is coming out of that. Therefore, in light of all that, I urge you, says Paul, brothers and sisters, in view of all that mercy 
all of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is God's word. You can be seated. So there's a word that's right in the heart of this text that I think is what this whole text is about. And it's the word worship. It's the last word of verse 1. This text is about worship. So let's ask, what does it mean to worship? Because I think so much of what we might call worship might actually just fall in the bucket of religion. And if you were here two weeks ago, you you will remember that Jesus came to the world to destroy religion. He did not come to the world to establish religion as so many people think. He actually came to the world to destroy religion because God's heart hates religion because it's so diametrically opposed to it. The gospel and religion couldn't be more opposite, which is why... Um, I provided that sheet, and if you did not get this, this one-page sheet that lays out gospel and religion and compares the two, I really encourage you to get it and to uh, work through it, have your devotions with it. We can't be a religious church. We need to be a gospel church, and those are two very different things. But the world of Paul because we want to get into this world. We don't want to divorce this book of Romans from Rome. Paul's world was shrouded in religion. That world had a God for everything. They had a God for war. They had a God for peace. They had a God for health. They had a God for wealth. They had a God for sport. They had a God for romance, for sex. They had a God for, for fortune. Anything you could think of, That's significant and important. They had a God for it. And every one of these gods had its own temple. Because in their minds, this is where the gods lived. They they lived in temples. So it was inconceivable to Paul's world for there to be a God and there not be a temple where that God lived. You couldn't have a religion in Paul's day and there not be a temple to honor that God or give worship expression to that God. Every God had its temple. Added to this, these temples were the most spectacular buildings in that world. In fact, oftentimes they were built right in the heart of the city, but their favorite places to place these temples were on Acropolis, which means the hill part of the city. They wanted everybody to see the glory of Aphrodite or Athena. In this case, there you have the Parthenon. We still have pieces of that world that still exist that tell us what that world is like, was like. And there's, there's the Parthenon in Athens, still trying to show off the glory of the goddess or the god Athena. Well, Paul is writing, as we know, this letter to Christians in Rome, and Rome at this time is a religious mecca. 
And we already talked about how in Paul's lifetime, Rome goes from being this regional republic to a world empire and how this young Octavian goes from being Julius Caesar's nephew to emperor. And once Augustus gets settled in and has total control and full reign, not just as emperor, but as son of God, in which temples have gone up all over the empire to also worship him as a son of God. He then sets his sights on a golden age. A golden age is this renaissance. It's this flowering of thought, this this flourishing of arts and culture and economics. And Augustus thinks that to, to ignite this, he feels like the empire needs reformation because all the prosperity has already brought some moral rot to the empire of Rome. And the kind of reformation that, that Augustus brings, and he did it through legislation, was bringing family values back to Rome. So this is what he legislated. All women, women, were to wear the Roman stola. This is a modest dress that went all the way down to a lady's feet. Men between the age of 26 and 60 had to be married. Listen to this one. Divorced and widowed women between the ages of 20 and 50 had six months to find a new husband. I don't know how that happened. Um, those who married at a young age and had multiple kids were given huge tax breaks and even incentives like better seats at the games or the theater. Augustus even made adultery subject to criminal prosecution. See, Augustus was no dummy. He knew that moral reformation also required spiritual revival. So he restored all 82 temples that were in the precinct of Rome. Now just stop and think about that. This is just one city. Of course, it's a big city, Rome. 82 temples. And Augustus is like, we're going to restore them. He adds 14 more. This is a time where he takes on a new title. Now he's not just son of God, but now he takes on the title of Pontifex Maximus, which essentially means Pope. He becomes the mediator of all the gods. Once he completes this, in 17 AD, think about this. This is when Jesus and Paul are are kids growing up. This is all happening right under their nose. Augustus held the Saculum Games. Two weeks of games of pageantry, of spectacles, of all the stadiums being filled to celebrate. Saculum in Latin means age. This new age that has dawned. This golden age, this enlightened age that divine Caesar Augustus has brought to the world. This is Paul's world. This is the world that he's writing Romans to. Temples are everywhere. 
And the worship of these gods was a huge part of every person's life daily. One was to bring their offering to any one of those temples, and they were to honor the god or goddess who lived there. And, and, and this worship was all about the offering. It had nothing to do with a lifestyle. It had nothing to do with how you lived. It was all about the offering. And the offering was usually animals or goods or valuables that you have that you would bring to the god on almost a daily basis. It was your civic duty to worship the gods and to offer your sacrifice, to offer your goods. Why? Because Romans were steeped in superstition. I don't know why, when I was thinking about superstition this week, why did my mind go to Michael Scott in the office episode? Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha, some of you know what I'm talking about. I'm not superstitious, says Michael Scott. I'm just a little stitious. Uh, I don't know. Well, Romans were superstitious. They were scared of the gods. They were scared to upset the gods, to offend the gods, because the gods were the ones who protected them, who prospered them, who made them healthy, who made them wealthy, who gave them victory over their enemies, who healed all their diseases, who protected their mothers when they gave birth. And therefore, the worship of the gods demanded full participation. This was a civic all-in. Every Roman going to the temples regularly, offering sacrifices, because if not, the gods will become very angry and they will send plague or earthquake or famine. Now, why do I say all this? Imagine being a Christian in Rome with its 82 temples plus 14. And you can just imagine the public response to those Christians who no longer go to temple, no longer offer sacrifices to the gods, no longer participate in the annual festivals to the gods. See, there's a reason why the first Christians were called atheists by the Romans, because they didn't believe in Mars and Juno and Aphrodite. They didn't worship these gods. They didn't participate in the worship of these gods. But think about all the slander, the insults, being marginalized, cut off by locals who think these Christians are blowing it for us because they aren't fulfilling their civic responsibility to, to honor the gods. See, this is why, if you're wondering why every New Testament book addresses the issue of suffering and persecution, what they are addressing primarily, with the exception of the book of Revelation, they're addressing this local persecution that is going on in every town and village throughout the Roman Empire. And if you read even like 1 Peter or James 1, you see how this local persecution could be fierce, Or imagine this. Imagine being a Christian in Rome and you strike a conversation up with a Roman and, and you start talking about religion and, and, and as a Christian, you start talking about Christ. And the person is like, hey, this, this Christ sounds really interesting. Tell me, where, where's this temple? What do you say? 
See, I know they asked the question because Paul preaching in Athens under the shadow of, of that Parthenon in Acts 17, he, Paul says, God who made the world, he doesn't live in temples made by human hands. God doesn't live in those buildings. Well, tell me then, where does your God live? And the Christian would say, well, we're the temple. He lives in us. Oh, give me a break. God doesn't live in people. All the gods live in temples. Well, sir, how about if you come to our little house church down the street, you might see and experience that the glory of God actually does live in us. Imagine if that guy actually came to your house church. What would be the proof that God lives in them? Remember Jesus' final prayer in John chapter 17? Father, I pray that they may love each other as I love you and you love me so that the world may know that they may be one, Father, as we are one, that they would be brought to complete unity so that the world may know you and that you sent me. So what's the proof? It's a community of brothers and sisters who learn to love each other the way Jesus loves us, who learn to give the way Jesus gives, who learn to forgive the way Jesus forgives. It's becoming a community where a slave walks in for the first time and a senator gets down on his knees and washes that slave's feet. And what I'm describing right now is what we've entitled this whole series. Cruciformity. Because cruciform, it's actually a term, it's an architectural term because it describes the, the first church buildings. When the first church buildings went up, um, I think I have a PowerPoint of that. This, this, this right here is, is the building design. And that lasted even all the way through the Middle Ages and into the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Uh, all these buildings are built, as an architecture would say, uh, in a cruciform style. The New Testament says, we're the building. And so therefore, we are to be a community that is shaped by the cross, that portrays and reflects the cross, that oozes the cross. And this is why I maintain, yes, Romans 1, 16 and 17 is one of the great thesis statements of, of Romans when Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Greek. The gospel is that. But Paul isn't writing this just to a bunch of individuals. He's writing this letter to a church, which is why what Nate preached so well last week from Romans 15, this too is one of the main purposes or thesis statements for, for why Paul is writing. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind, one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of your Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another 
show hospitality to one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. That's not just an anecdotal thought by Paul. That's not just an add-on at the end of a book. That's one of Paul's main purposes for writing. Because becoming a cruciform community is everything. It's God's strategy to reach the world. And I will maintain two things. I will maintain that when God sees brothers and sisters loving each other, accepting each other, living in unity with each other, that his heart is always drawn to that, that he will come and live among that because that's God's heart. And I also maintain that when we fail to live out Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 or, or that text in Romans 15, I maintain that his spirit departs and our disunity will prove to the world that we are a fraud. And that's why I say, what a time for the church right now to put Christ crucified on display to the world. And this starts with you. This starts with me. It starts with my life. It starts with your life. You are the church. We are the church. And we can't be the church if I'm a fraud. And if you're a fraud. Our lives are to be cruciform. My life is to be cruciform, cross-shaped, forged by the cross, reflecting the cross, portraying the cross, oozing the cross. Well, let me just show you this. Does your life reflect that? Portray that? Your marriage, husbands, wives. Does your marriage tell the story of that? Parents. All of us, within our relationships, where we work, our neighborhoods. Is this what people see? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified is not just something that we know. It's not just something that we sing about. It's not just something we preach. The gospel of Christ crucified is actually something that we are all to become our very lives are to conform to it, transformed by it, and telling the story of it to the world. This is why Paul says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your act of worship. Your body. Do you think of worship in terms of your body? Your body. And I ask, why, why my body? Again, because Christianity is far more than a doctrine to believe or a song to sing or a sermon to hear. Christ literally is embodied in us. He lives in us. 
so that all that Christ is, is to be lived out of us, where our lives begin to look like him, where we talk like him, we act like him, we walk like him, we think like him, where his heart is our heart, where his eyes are our eyes. This is why Paul says in Galatians 2 verse 20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. (laughs) Think about it. He says, I no longer live because Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live because Christ lives in me, I live in the body. I live in the body by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's cruciformity. Cruciformity is Christ living in me, Christ living out of me, because Christ is embodied in me. Now, how does this happen? This happens when we offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, this is the language of that world because I've talked about the, the temples and the gods and the worship. I mean, worship was all about offering the sacrifice to the gods. Even the Jews uh, had their temple and the way that you worshiped God was you, you brought your sacrifice to the temple and this was worship. So I want us to think about this because we take this so for granted so radically different for Paul's world. No longer do you go to a temple and bring your sacrifice because we now are the temple and we are the sacrifice. And the sacrifice is our very body offered to God. Holy, pleasing. And God through Paul says, that's true worship. Are you a worshiper? How are you doing right now? This is why Paul spends a lot of time in in Romans 6 talking about how we are in Christ. And as he's talking about how, how we are in Christ and Christ is in us, Uh, In verses 13 to 19, six times Paul uses the same word that he uses in in, in 12 verse 1 to offer. What are you offering your body to? Because see, we are all offering ourselves. We are all offering our bodies. We are all offering our lives to something. (laughs) We've been made to worship. I mean, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? What is it that gives your life meaning right now? What is it that you derive your sense of worth from? What is it that you go to 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 give you joy and satisfaction? Don't you see that this is probably your real God and this is the God that you worship? What is it right now that you're living for? What is it that gets the best of you, your best time, gets lots of your money, that you're willing even to sacrifice a lot for right now. That's the God that you worship. I mean, we can come here and sing songs. I worship you, Jesus. I worship you alone. 
you are my Lord, you are my Savior. I don't know what song that is, but uh, I just made it up, obviously. <laughs> we sing songs like that all the time, but do you see how that can just be lip service? What functions, who functions right now as your true Lord and Savior? Imagine this right now. Imagine Grand Rapids right now having 50 beautiful, glorious buildings dedicated to the gods. Can you envision it? And, and, and that these buildings were not just stunning to behold, but that all of Grand Rapids participated in these buildings almost daily as one's civic duty for Grand Rapids to be healthy and wealthy. Now be careful not to look down on the ancients because we're not that different from the ancients. In many ways, we still live in Rome because... We're not that different. I mean, I think our biggest, tallest buildings st still reflect what we worship, who we worship, what we worship. They house the very idols that we trust, that we go to, the gods that we worship from Wall Street to Capitol Hill to our medical mile. This is precisely why Paul has to say what he says next. He says, do not conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And, and, and this word for being conformed to the world in, in the Greek, it's, it's the word morphe. It's, it's Paul saying, don't be morphed into the world. Because the world is a force, a powerful force. And there's so many angles right now that, that we could look at, at at what Paul is trying to say here, how he's warning us against, against the world and, and conforming to it. But the, the, the thing that God put on my heart and the angle then that we'll take in this, because there's so many angles in scripture, it's talked about all the time, but my mind was drawn to Ecclesiastes where King Solomon sought to find meaning in anything and everything under the sun. In fact, this is what Ecclesiastes is about. You, you have a man with infinite amounts of power and wealth who embarks on this experiment to see if there's anything under the sun, a closet he uses 30 times. Is there anything under the sun that's worth living for? And he, he describes the experiment that he embarks upon. I mean, you can read about this in Ecclesiastes chapter two. Solomon indulged in everything he indulged in every hedonistic kind of pleasure, whether it be sex, wine, power, parties, sex. He lays it all out. He indulged in every form of materialism. He built houses and cottages and parks and golf courses. He became drunk on consumerism. Literally, he ends it all by saying this. He says, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. If my eyes desired it, Solomon says, I indulged in it. And you know what he says when it was all done? Here's his conclusion. He says, I hate life 
I hate the things that I thought would bring meaning. And he says, my life is now in complete despair, meaningless, meaningless. It's all a chasing after the wind. People, this is the world. This is our world. This is the sad state of so many people in our world. And see, this is why Jesus and the New Testament authors, and, and not even just the New Testament, but the Old Testament, why they have such a respect for the world and the seductive force that the world can be from its ideologies, its worldviews, its lifestyles, its religion. This is why they say things over and over again, like do not love the world, do not seek the stuff of the world, do not try to Try to get the world to like you because the world will hate you. Do not belong to the world. Do not be friends of the world. Do not be slaves to the world. And Paul here now says, do not conform to the world. Do not be morphed into it. In fact, Rome became so decadent in its unbridled hedonism and sensual indulgence that 300 years after Jesus came to the world, Christians, many of them, decided to jump ship entirely from the world, and they went to live in the desert. You know why they did this? Because they saw the world as a shipwreck. And so they left the world to seek Christ in the desert with all of their heart. Now, while I disagree with, with their abandoning the world, because like Jesus and the disciples in the early church, we must, we must incarnate ourselves fully in the world. Plant ourselves in the world. We're not to run or retreat from the world. However, this period of church history messes with me in so many good ways because I'm, I'm looking at these believers who were free from the world. They were free to leave the world with all its comforts, pleasures, its stuff, its noise, its values, its screens, its, its gods, all of it. And so they confront me could I do this? Could I abandon the world like this? How entrenched, how dependent, how attached, how much is my heart seduced by the world and all its pleasures? How much am I defined by the world? How much am I satisfied by the world? How much am I a slave to the world? And see, this is why Paul is saying, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And trust me, there's like three or four sermons here. (laughs) But here's how I'm going to explain this. Because this is how the Bible explains so much of what it wants us to know. More is caught than taught, which is why so much of the Bible comes to us through stories and characters and, and truth out of those stories and characters. Like someone like Abraham, who Paul in the book of Romans spends a whole chapter saying in Romans 4, let's look at Abraham. And Abraham's life makes meaning of Romans 12, verse 2. Because both Romans and the book of Hebrews tells us this about Abraham, that Abraham was as good as dead. That's a great, that's a great definition of how we are 
to be in relationship with the world. He was dead. Dead to what? He was dead to the world. He was dead to the spirit of the age. He was dead to the opinions of people. He was dead to the world's stuff. He was dead to the world's ideas. He was dead to what's in and what's out. He was dead to what's cool and uncool. He was dead to the rise and fall of markets. He was dead to uh, political opinion and, and, and how everyone would, would, would determine who or what he should think and believe. He was dead. He was dead where money was just money, where, where a house is just a roof over our head, where clothes are just what we put on to cover ourselves, where a vacation is just a means to rest in Shabbat, where he could hold everything with open hands, easy come, easy call. If I have it, I have it. If I don't, I don't. I mean, think about God's first words to Abraham. Abraham, I want you to go. I want you to get up. I want you to leave. I want you to leave your comfort. I want you to leave what's familiar. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave safety. And he goes. And he goes and he essentially becomes an exile. He becomes a stranger in this world. He becomes a stranger to this world. Yet he's sent by God to be fully in the world. And this is what I think needs to become a major part of, of, of the identity of Christians today. We need to start thinking of ourselves as exiles. Peter, when he addresses the church in 1 Peter 1 verse 1, he addresses them as exiles. What's an exile? Exiles are people who no longer choose to do life based on comfort, safety, what's familiar, being in control, but rather an exile is someone who's willing to go anywhere where they can best carry out the kingdom of heaven. That's an exile. And that's an exile mindset. And this this mindset was forged in, into the early church's minds. They weren't hanging on so tightly to their safety and to their comfort, to the world's stuff. And because of this, they weren't stuck on the beach, but they could get into the boat. They could fish the abyss. They could suffer well. They could go through pandemics with poise. They could be sent to some of the hardest places in the world and they could offer their bodies as living sacrifices. Because that's where this is going. We so divorced this great book of Romans from its actual context. But for the first hearers, the first Christians in Rome who heard Phoebe stand up and read this letter, uh, scholars say this happened anywhere between 56, but probably as late as 58 AD. Six to eight years after, these Roman Christians heard the book of Romans. You have this. In 64 AD, Nero declared war on Christians in Rome. 
He arrested them. He lit them up like you see them lit up like torches at halftime shows. He lit them up as human torches in the street. And for these halftime shows, this painting is called The Final Prayer, The Last Prayer. And this is what God, through Paul, is preparing these Roman Christians for. Church in Rome, brothers and sisters, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And what gave them the courage to do that? They were exiles. This world was not their home. They had a different king. They lived for a different kingdom. And so they offered literally their bodies as living sacrifices. And God, through Paul, says, that's true worship. In fact, the first time, and the rabbis always say the first time a word in Scripture is, is, is its best definition. The first time the word worship is used in the Bible is in Genesis 22. It's when God's... <clears throat> when God says to Abraham offer up your one and only son Isaac as a sacrifice and the text says early the next morning Abraham saddled his donkey and set out with Isaac for the place that God said and that place literally became the place where God's house his temple would be built and in later times, it would literally be called the place. The place where God's people would go to worship. But in Genesis 22, when, when, when Abraham, walking with Isaac, saw that place in a distance, he then said to his servants, he said, Isaac and I will go up to that place and we will worship. There's your first time worship is used in the Bible because this is what worship is. It's not just going to that place, to that house where a temple will one day be built. Worship is offering up to God something greater than your own life. That's worship. Are you a worshiper? Are you offering up to God something right now greater than your own life? See, because what Paul would say, because he says it throughout the, the book of Romans, if you want to know what, what true faith is, look at Abraham. If you want to know what it means to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, look at Abraham. He became an exile. 
If you want to know what true worship is, look at Abraham because he offered up what he loved most as a living sacrifice. And I've read that story and I've asked myself, like, what got Abraham up that hill to that place? Was it just willpower? Was it rules? Was it religion? Was it this idea, I just have to do this? No. Because as he's walking up that hill with Isaac, Isaac asks him, Dad, where? Where's the lamb? We have everything for the sacrifice. Where's the lamb? And all Abraham can say to him is, son, God will provide. And he doesn't know how God's going to provide. But the one thing Abraham knows about God is that God is good, that God is gracious, that God is merciful. Son, God will provide. And guess what? God didn't just provide a lamb that day. But 2,000 years after Abraham, God walked his son up that same hill to that same place and places his son on an altar, a cross. That's cruciformity, by the way. God on a cross. And why did God do this? You know, Paul ends Romans 7 with something so stunning because it's coming from Paul. But you can just sense Paul's battle with sin as he's talking about uh, his sin in chapter 7 and it becomes so personal to Paul how, how sin has just crushed him to the point where he ends Romans 7 by saying, oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Do you know this about yourself? I do. I pray this prayer all the time. (laughs) Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? And then in Romans 8, Paul begins with words that are almost too good to be true. He says, there is now therefore... No condemnation for those who are in Christ. And you're left almost saying, how can that be? Because of what Paul says at the end of Romans 8. He says, God who did not spare his own son, but God offered him up. Will he not graciously and mercifully provide us all things? See, God rescues sinners like Paul. God rescues sinners like me for the simple reason that he is merciful. Do you know this mercy? Because Paul says, therefore, in view of God's mercy, (laughs) offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Let's pray. God, as we prepare for communion right now, this meal that you gave us, because you don't only want us to know the gospel, you want us to literally eat it and to take it in. God, may this be a time of repentance and renewal. 
sure the Holy Spirit has put his finger on different ways that we have been morphed into the world. And God, may we repent. And God, may we turn back, turn to you. And God, may the enemy not turn you into the God that you're not. Because the God that Jesus declared you to be, you're the the father on the porch with arms open. You're a God on a cross. So in this time, I just want to say we're going to try something just a little different because we want to slow this down. If you want to take communion, just in the privacy of your own heart, there's places in the back where you can just go and take communion. But we've also got a place where you can come with your family, your friends, or by yourself and join others to bend your knee. Because we're talking about the body and to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, the best posture we can be in is this one. And to bless the Lord, literally in Hebrew, it's the word barak, to bless. It, also, it literally means to bend your knee Psalm 103, David says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. He's literally saying, God, I bend my knee to you. But here's the most amazing thing. The first words that God says to Abraham were, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bend my knee to you so that you can bend your knee to the world. And think about how God bent the knee in Christ, especially the cross. So the table is set.